Welcome to Making Action Happen with Sarah Blackhurst and Brian McCain. We're here to discuss public policy issues in our home state of Colorado and beyond. Making Action Happen is presented by Action 22. Find out more about our organization at action22.org. Now, here are your hosts, Sarah Blackhurst and Brian McCain. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Making Action Happen. I'm Sarah Blackhurst. And I'm Brian McCain. And we are going to just have a discussion with the two of us today, but we've been pretty busy. Before we get into that, we've been pretty busy in the last uh, last couple of weeks or so. Of course, last week was uh, Veterans Day, so we were running around that. We've started an exciting new project down in the San Luis Valley about broadband and uh, expanding that through the a digital equity lens. So uh, we've been having some conversations we didn't expect to be having anytime soon, but we've learned a ton this last week on um, exactly where some of the gaps are and why there's so much money has already been spent in huge broadband build-outs for like what? You've been working on broadband forever. 15 years. 15 years. I've only been working on broadband since I started with Action 22, and it was only because I realized very quickly that I had been taking the broadband that I have up or that we have up in Rye uh, for granted, we were the first community um, in the U.S. to actually have fiber directly to the home, and it's been about 15 years that we've had that up there. But it's still a big problem um, that there's so many communities that are either unserved or underserved. So we're going to be working on that for the next two years. Yeah, and for the record, I think the definition of broadband from the federal and state perspective is totally wrong. So it's... they. Consider broadband 25 download and three upload, which if anybody has kids that are in school right now and they had to go through remote learning during COVID, you know that that's not an accurate speed to get things done. But as it stands in the state of Colorado, which mirrors the FCC, that is the definition of broadband. While in the meantime, I have like a gig down and 500 right. up or something like that. But some of these areas don't even have 10 in one. Which is shocking. Yes. Because literally billions of dollars have already been spent um, in this country and over a billion dollars in Colorado have yeah, been spent. Yeah, billions and billions of dollars. Has So we're going to be working on where that's at and what um, is going on with that. Um, and then you were up in Springs this morning. Yep. For... Um, went up there. KRDO does a, a local radio program on, on AM and a podcast. So um, I was invited up through Mount Carmel, which is the veteran service organization that's based out of Springs. It's a nonprofit and they, they do a lot of good stuff for the veterans. They expanded into Pueblo. Our good friend Doug Fitzgerald is, is running that office down here. They are expanding into Trinidad as well. They've been there for a while. And now there's talk about a few. Oh, and they're also in Fountain, Colorado as well. And there's talk about somewhere else. And I know they're kind of eyeballing Custer County because Custer County has a, the highest population of veterans in the country, or if, if not one of the highest, the highest. Last per time I capita, checked, it right? was the highest per capita. Um, but the interesting thing about Custer County is it's only an hour away from Pueblo, which you think isn't a big deal. But <laughs> in the winter, there's basically a road in and a road out. And that road gets terrible during the winter. In fact, we drove up there with somebody from the, the VA, one of the, the suits, the bigwigs from the VA once, and it was during winter, and we were trying to prove that, you know, the Pueblo Clinic is not an option for the veterans in Custer County. And on paper, it looks fine. It's like literally like 30 miles away as the crow flies, and then right. around 49 miles away when you drive. And so we're going up there, and it's kind of the winter months. And we saw an ambulance crash, an ambulance that was holding somebody, taking them from Custer County to the Pueblo Hospital, actually crash. And then another ambulance had to come and get the ambulance driver and the other patient out of the ambulance and take them to Pueblo. And that that really kind of put the nail in the coffin for them denying some local services up there saying, oh, you could just go to Pueblo. And they're like, oh, this isn't exactly 
how we want it to be. Until you drive that road, you can't really conceptualize it. So just imagine, if you will, some of the gnarliest switchbacks you've ever seen. It's an absolutely beautiful road, but even perfectly clear on there's a couple spots that you have to literally slow down to about 30 miles an hour going fast um, on some of those switchbacks to get um, from Pueblo to uh, right, it's right before hard scrabble so on 160 it's crazy now imagine that covered in ice oh there's just no way you wouldn't even attempt it unless no. it was an absolute emergency uh, for most of the time in winter so um, even with four-wheel drive or whatever you're yeah. not getting through that so that that's one reason I, I I think I mentioned it to Mount Carmel and they've been doing some outreach there like I have nothing to do with it but that's one area that I've always thought that need a little more attention when it comes to the veterans stuff, just because it's like 27% of their population of, uh, and I'm totally wrong here. I'm like kind of making up numbers, but I think it's around 7,000 people. So you have like 27% of the 7,000 are actual veterans that are in the VA healthcare system. And those are just the veterans that are in the system. Now there's also veterans right. there that are not in the system that they, they haven't identified yet. No, it's... I've been really impressed by the work um, and the momentum that uh, Colonel McLaughlin has been able to to garner in the last, what, it's not even been a year. It's been like the last six months. Yeah, just with us. But he's been there, I think, for three years, maybe two years. I, I can't remember. But he, he fully came in, you know, wanting to give back. And, and that's the reason why he stayed in Colorado Springs. Um, he was offered the position, and it's a good way for him to give back to the the basically get back to the troops that he used to be in charge of. Well, and I know that he's been giving you a lot of credit, you, Brian McCain, personally, for helping with that momentum, especially in the last few months, to get some of these things done. So Yeah, yeah. It's just he identified us as a strategic partner, and I the same for me, and it, it helps promote our organization and what we can do and some of the services we can offer to our membership. But it's also doing good work for the veterans, and I and I think that Mount Carmel does a great job for the veterans, and they kind of pick up, they cover some of the gaps where maybe the VA or the the usual means that the veterans go through for healthcare um, benefits, that sort of thing. Like they they fill up some of the gaps, and they have a great partnership with the VA and all the veteran service organizations. So it, it's a it's good group. Um, and they're in Pueblo now, and they're in Trinidad, they're in Fountain, so look forward to see what they do. And there's there's an event coming up on December 13th, correct? Yep, it's their community reception. So far, I think they have 160 people invited, and they're hosting it at the American for Center, the Center for American Values, and it's basically they're going to showcase their community partners, which there's quite a few. We're one of them, and it's it's going to be open and you can come in, you can see what they do, what they're bringing and, you know, just kind of mingle and meet everybody that's running that great organization. That's, it'll be awesome. So um, we'll send some stuff out uh, in our uh, mailer or email blast about that uh, for those of you who are close and around. So, um, so broadband, one of the primary things that we're talking about with broadband um, affects both the veterans, uh, but also education. So I have to tell you, I'm just a little bit nervous. I wanted to have this conversation today, but I'm, I'm having some anxiety about it right now. And probably because this has become a really personal thing for me lately. Um, and I, I shouldn't say lately, it's been going on for a, a little bit. Uh, and when you start to, when you have something going on in your own life, you sort of just, you know, put it away because you've got other things to do. But we've been hearing things about, uh, and we've been talking about uh, education and how we actually make education better in Colorado uh, for the last little bit. So when you hear something from somebody else, and then you hear it from somebody else, and at some point you have to say, okay, it's time to talk about about this. Um, and so you've got four kids. Mm-hmm. I've got, and they're all school-age kids. I've got yes. two school-age kids left. Um, and we, we tend to look at this from the, 
school funding. We, we talk about that. We've talked about that several times. And I know the stuff that I'm going to talk about today, we can't actually do a darn thing about it right now. But I want to have the conversation because maybe that's where some of these things or changes can start to have happen. So for those of you who um, aren't familiar, Colorado has a very unique um, fiscal policy, has several very unique fiscal policies, ones that don't happen any place else in the country. And it starts with the legislature. So the legislature, we're, I think we're the only state in the union that um, does not allow the legislature to raise taxes, right? It has to go to the voters. Everything has to go to the voters. It's called TABOR, and it's the Taxpayer Bill of Rights. Yes. Um, so the Taxpayer Bill of Rights. So then the legislature gets to decide how the money is spent with a lot of provisos. And one of those is on education. So in... 2000, so this is, you know, a few years back. In 2000, um, Colorado voters passed Amendment 23. And Amendment 23 basically said that um, there's a certain percentage of the general fund that they're requiring to give to education. And it had to increase along with inflation. Fast forward a few years, uh, and they get to the they're realizing that they can't actually commit as much money as they had originally thought that they could. You know, there's a lot of other programs coming up. It's whatever. So they called it the negative factor because Colorado requires a balanced budget. They can't go into debt officially. So this is another thing that's kind of interesting. So what they said is um, they call it the negative factor, and it was basically – we're not going to be able to give all the money that we're supposed to give under the amendment 23. So we're going to give it, uh, so we're going to owe it to you. We're going to owe it to education in Colorado. They've racked up quite a bill. Um, and last year it was even, or this for this year, for this fiscal year, it was even more. So depending on who you talk to, we're in the billions on it over several years. Mm-hmm. Um so I wanted to say that. So now it's called, if, you, if you're paying attention to this kind of thing, there's a whole bunch of money that's owed to schools. They're old, owed to Colorado education. Um, they, cha- they decide to change it to the neg- from the negative factor um, because they thought negative had, you know, a negative connotation. So that now they call it the budget stabilization factor or... The BS factor. <laughs> That was some really great stuff. So I wanted to give you that background. So, and we'll come back to that. Um, So, okay, here's where it gets really personal. So I'm married to a teacher. Most of you know that about me. And um, there's a lot of, so I'm getting some perspectives from that. We also have um, twins who are in eighth grade. Um, and I, I'm going to tell you right now, one of them is on an education plan. Uh, he gets um, in an education plan. Um, he has been diagnosed with ADD, but it's the kind of ADD where you just zone out. Like when it, everything gets overwhelming for you, you're just gone. Like you go to a different, whatever, wherever he goes in his brain. Um, it's What's interesting about that is that um, so he's on an education plan. I have a brother um, whose daughter is now on an education plan. And then I have a nephew, uh, my sister's son, who was on an education plan for something else. And it's not all, some of them are the same, but not all of them are. Um, but, and he's now in, in college. So several months ago, I asked, uh, well, it wasn't several months ago. So I was on the phone with my sister and I asked her, you know, how my how our nephew is doing, and he's in college now, and he's um, dyslexic. And she said he is doing so fantastic. He's at CSU. He's doing uh, the all of the programs, all of the support 
She just cannot believe the kind of support that he's getting at CU for dyslexia. They have special, um, like they have special labs and they have um, all kinds of stuff to help him. And he's just exceeding in a way that they never thought was possible for him because of the struggle that he had with, you know, keeping up with his studies and, and all of that. So um, a high five to see you for everything that they're doing. So it got, so I asked my sister, she said, you know, I'm love that he's doing so well, but I'm particularly frustrated that why did he have to wait till he got to college to get the kind of support that he got? So we started to talk about that. So I'm going to set that for aside for a minute um, and what she said. So now let's, we'll go back to my husband's a teacher. And of course, um, the, so I, it's from his point of view, the frustrations that he's had as a teacher, especially over the last two years. But even before that, I have to tell you that um, for him and his, um, so he's a, he's a science teacher at the high school, um, and it's a small rural school, of course, um, and so there's two science teachers. Their entire budget for a year for both, for all their labs and everything that they do, for textbooks, for equipment, for everything, is less than $400 a year. So for the entire school. So, um, you know, we do a lot out of our own pocket um, to take care of, you know, some of the things that just aren't covered, which we're happy to do because it's that, Education is that important in our in our family. So, um, one of the big frustrations that I saw with all, and by the way, um, some of my best friends are teachers. Uh, we're like it's a te- that teacher community, that educator community is pretty tight knit. One of the things that really bugged um, bugged us during all of this was. Everybody was very busy trying to figure out how to get things done. But the only people that were asking or communicating with the, you know, who these frontline workers are, and when we think frontline, I don't think we often think teachers. Um, One of them was, um, like, you know, principals would talk to them. But administrators, none of the decision makers that I saw were doing in this area, were doing a really outstanding job of asking the teachers what they needed. And that's one of the things that I think the frustration came up with. And I'm doing a lot of talking here, and I'm sorry, because I, I wanted to give some context to this discussion. So I was asking my sister what she thought would be better, and she told me a story what would have made it, that experience better with her with having somebody, um, you know, having a kid with dyslexia, and we knew all the struggles that they had. Well, they had to, in order for them to get um, to get the support uh, that they needed, they knew that they that he was struggling in school, and so they took him to um, a psychologist that could actually diagnose him with dyslexia, and they had to, they had to go through all of this stuff in order for him to get that. Now they're in a financial position to pay. And, and to have that paid for, that's not just normally done. So the average household um, in Colorado may not have access to those kinds of supports. As soon as they got the diagnosis, um, they went to the teachers to say, this is the diagnosis and we need to have a, a, a plan made for him. And one of the teachers said, yeah, we know, we know that he's dyslexic. We knew that, that he was dyslexic. And my sister literally broke down in tears about that because she's like, why didn't anybody tell me? And they said, we're not allowed to diagnose. We're not allowed to say that this is what the problem is. And she says, if you don't even suspect what the problem is, I mean, you're going to know, but we had to go through all this. What about families that don't have the kind of resources that we have to be able to do this? So she said, if you want to improve education in Colorado, 
you have to break down the barriers of communication between teachers, parents, and administration. So where I'm sitting here thinking this is a hugely financial thing, it's only a portion of where we are failing in Colorado um, on that part. So let's go back to the funding part. And you're looking up where we are exactly on funding. So talk a little bit about that, will you? So depending on what report you read. So Colorado is currently, as of 2020, the 10th lowest in public school spending or funding. So basically, it's around $9,700 per pupil, which is 10th lowest in the nation. I think the, the average is around $12,000. Um, our high school graduation, graduation rate is only 78%, and that's the sixth lowest in the nation. Um, eighth grade um, NAEP proficiency, so that's like math and reading, we're at 36.9%. But here's the crazy thing. So when it comes to adults with bachelor's degrees, so we're looking at higher education, Colorado's actually really high up. And we're the second highest in the nation with just adults with bachelor's degrees. Um, adults 25 to 64 years old with incomes, at or above the national median is the 12th highest in the country. So that's 56%. Now, looking at that, I, I think the, you know, one reason for that is we, we have a lot of good schools here in Colorado from School of Mines, CU, DU, um, the uh, CSU, CSU Pueblo, UNC. You know, these are, these are national schools that people want to go to. It, it used to be CU was like, you know, in the, the top 10. Uh, I don't know what it's, at, what it's at now, but I know it's up there still. And then obviously, like the School of Mines, that's kind of like MIT, but for more of the like engineering, natural resources stuff. And then obviously, we have the Air Force Academy as well. Um, and we have a big military presence with a lot of aerospace. So that number's kind of off with the people with higher education because, you know, the second largest aerospace state in the country is here. So, of course, you're going to have a lot of engineers um, PhDs, like higher, like postgraduate people come here and work. Um, but again, going back to the, the funding, you know, we're the sixth lowest, or I'm sorry, the 10th lowest when it comes to funding or public education. And I don't know, you could get into the weeds on this because we do have a lot of private schools. We have charter schools, we have magnet schools. And I don't know if like this counts towards a magnet school or a charter school because they're funded with a different mechanism. But still, the majority of the people are going to, to public education, and, you know, it's, they're not spending a lot of money. But on the other hand, you know, you see a lot of money spent on the more administrative sides, and, mm -hmm. and that's, that's always been an issue with me with any, any organization from the VA to hospitals to whatever. It's like you see this heavy spending on, spending on the administrative side and not the spending, like, to put it in, to make it simple, it's like, okay, so we're going to pay 10 hospital administrators a lot of money and we're going to pay like three doctors the same amount of money. So they're spending more on the administration than the actual doctors or the teachers or whatever. Right. And that's an issue too. And, and then frankly, like when you, you come to um, like special, I want to say special needs, but um, that may not even be the correct term. But like people that may have a little bit of a learning disability, mm -hmm. not severe enough that they need to be separated from the normal learning system. But we're talking kids with dyslexia, um, you know, some other issues. It, it could even be social issues. It could be they don't have a good home life or, you know, they're struggling. Um, they could be homeless for all we know. Yeah. Um, there's kind of a gap there because the, the people that are in the school system to take care of those kids and hold, I don't want to say hold their hand, but like walk them through the education process and be that just little bit of extra help to make, to help them succeed. They don't get paid anything. No. Like their, their salary is like, like I, they, we call them paraprofessionals. You know, they make like 24,000 a year. And that's, that was the next problem um, that, that I've seen. That's really a funding problem. Um, but let me tell you this, and we're going to go to break in just a minute. Um, here's the other part of it. So the state has the, they have the general fund and they have the money um, and they disperse it to um, 
and this is what this is really important for everybody to understand. The legislature disperses it to or to the C, CDE, and they put it out to all the school districts based on whatever funding mechanism process they have in place. Once it gets to the school district, the legislature has no influence on it. Once it gets to the school district, they're getting to decide how they spend it, and is it on administration or is it on those frontline workers? So um, we're going to talk about that uh, and a little bit more about what, how should we be viewing this and how should we be looking at this um, or how we think um, that we should be looking at this and how we can make it better. Uh, stick around. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. This episode of Making Action Happen is sponsored by Action 22's amazing energy leaders. Excel Energy, Colorado Rural Electric Association, Colorado Oil and Gas Association, Gil Romero and the Capital Success Group, Black Hills Energy, Nextera Energy, San Isabel Electric Association, Outshine Energy, Colorado Solar and Storage Association, Tri-State and 174 Power Global. Action 22 is a nonpartisan, membership-driven organization which serves as a voice for action on public policy for 22 southern Colorado counties on the state and federal level. We focus on how issues relating to Colorado legislation, local government affairs, health care, education, and natural resources intersect for the economic health of our region. If you're a leader in your community and are considering joining Action 22, you can get more information by emailing show at action22.org or visit our website at action22.org. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com This is Making Action Happen with Sarah Blackhurst and Brian McCain. To reach the show today, call in to one 866 Four seven two five seven eight eight. Again, that's one eight six six four seven two fifty seven eighty eight. You may also reach out via email to sarah.blackhurst at action22.org. Now, back to making action happen. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. We're just having a discussion about education in Colorado and how we can do a little bit better job. And I've gotten really personal on this uh, on this particular episode. And it's because I know that uh, the way we get things done is we ha- start to have conversations. And and I'm the kind of person that asks a lot of questions. It's pretty annoying to most people because I keep asking until I figure out uh, what exactly um, can and needs to be done. So. Um, we were talking about funding and education and para um, and the para pros and those really those frontline workers. So it's been really difficult. And I was wrong. So a para, a, a para educator, a para pro in Pueblo makes $26,322 a year on average. Oh my gosh. So that's like, I'll figure it out. Keep talking. Okay. Honest. All right. <laughs> that makes me about want to cry. So, you know, there's just been so much, um, I think, a lot of emotional struggle. It's You can feel it with the teachers, with students, with everybody. And they're all trying to come back, and they're all doing their best. And, of course, there's going to be some craziness, but everybody just feel, it seems like everybody's just very emotionally raw right now. So my boys... Um, and, you know, one of them is a, is a diverse learner. So a parapro in Pueblo makes $13.70 an hour. Okay, so we're going to say that again. A, a parapro in Pueblo, Colorado right now makes $13.70 an hour, and that's before taxes. Yeah. So their bring-home pay take 20% off of that for their yeah. bring home pay. Yeah, actually it has it like with some other stuff, like according to 
the the actual site that I'm going off of with the data. It's about twelve dollars and sixty five cents an hour is what they make. Okay, five hundred bucks a week. Just put it at that. Five hundred bucks a week. Okay, these are the people that we're asking to be on the front lines to help with these guys. So we have a lot of discussions about at our house about. Um, really trying to say, you know, what's going on with you? What are your feelings? What's going on with school? There's a lot of discussions on all the levels at our house. We do, um, and not because, <laughs> we just have to get through it. Like everybody else, we have to get through it. But we're very open with each other about what's happening um, in our lives. So um, several weeks ago, as the kids were coming back to school, um, and they were just trying to get their feet under them, and right now, like, if you have the slightest sniffle, you, you're not in school. And then, yeah. you know, there's, it's just been trying to figure, navigate all of that. Um, so one of my little dudes came and said that he felt like he needed counseling, that he was really struggling, um, not just with school and keeping his grades up and, and all of that, but trying to just emotionally navigate. Now, they're in middle school, and middle school is brain damage, right? They're not... They're not functioning like normal people when they're in middle school. Um, and so, but we took, we take that very seriously and, and we started to have some discussions and we got him some counseling and so forth. Um, he, and he's worked really, really hard um, to try to get his grades up. They both have because, you know, they had just a regular bug at the beginning of school and they had to miss quite a bit and they had to catch up. And so we were back on track my mom sits with them every single day after school. And just on a side note real fast, because um, it's right now colds are going around, so every kid's getting sick and the sniffles and the cough. Um, the state of Colorado does offer free COVID tests to people that have kids in school. You just go on, you can just yes. Google the state of Colorado COVID tests, and they'll send them to you. It takes about a month for you to get how many ever, like four. But if you have kids in school or your job's requiring it, you can actually get those rapid tests for free. And we got, I think, six of them. And the first thing that you say when you call into the school, it's like, yeah, so-and-so's not feeling well. They're like, well, has he been tested or she been tested right. for COVID? I'm like, yes. And it came back negative. They're like, okay, take two days, go to the doctor, you know, the normal. Like, yeah, we'll yeah. see if it goes away in a day or two. But those, those rapid tests are huge and they're kind of like lifesavers right now right um because you can actually determine if hey i gotta stay home from work or we gotta quarantine like so take advantage of that program colorado offers and they can go on everybody can go online yeah you can go online there's a questionnaire and they email you and it's of course the state so it takes a few weeks to go through the process but you, you can buy them at walgreens as well but you know it's not cheap yeah just get them now is what we're saying yeah so he comes home and he says that, that something happened at school and the teacher said something and blah, blah, blah. So I am, you know, one of those moms and I go stomping in to have a conversation with the teacher. Uh, and I don't normally do that because, or I, I had waited around because, um, you know, my husband's a teacher and we respect and, and have a, a great deal of affection for these frontline workers who are teachers. She was very generous with our discussion and it, you know, it, it took us a minute to get there because all the teachers are in a very defensive posture right now. And so after a little bit, um, what I discovered was what she's has the same thing going on in, in her class um, and in, and in uh, my son's class as well. They have a huge number of diverse learners um, in the classes and they have to, anybody who's on a plan, um, you know, some of them need a lot more support. So they have, um, in any of their class. So they have, um, these para pros that go with them, mm-hmm. but the para pros are so, are spread so thin because we don't value them. We don't give them the money that they need to do the job. They follow around. And so, because they're so short and they keep pulling Parapros out of the school systems. And this isn't just District 70 in Pueblo, but it's District 60 as well. And why would you work for that amount of money, by the way? Um, it's crazy. Well, they, they have the money to hire them. It's just nobody wants to do it. Um, well, they don't want to do it for that amount of money. Yeah. 
So, I mean, they, they have, you know, all these para positions open, but when you look at your take home is going to be $12 an hour, why in the world would you do that? So they, they, you know, they take the para pros. Um, and so then all of the kids um, are in the same class and the para pros support, supporting maybe five or six or seven kids at a time in a classroom. And so long story short, the teachers are spread very, very thin. And because they're spread thin, it trickles down. Um, and so my son is struggling in that class, of course, because he's got ADD. And when I had the conversation about that and some of the other stuff with counseling and so forth with the teacher, the teacher says, we did not know that. We didn't, nobody has communicated that with us. They're not allowed to communicate with that with us. And it went back to what my sister was saying that part of the problem is those lines of communication are inhibited in every way. And in addition to that, there we're not giving them the support that they need for those frontline workers. We're putting the money in into administration. And on top of that, for anybody that doesn't know, a parapro, as we're calling them, is a paraeducator, and it's defined as a school employee who works under the supervision of teachers and other professional practitioners, whatever yeah. that means, yeah. practitioners. Practitioners. Um, their jobs are instructional in nature, and they provide other direct services to children and youth and their families. So basically, they're kind of a liaison. The school does identify kids that are having, having some troubles, and what the parapro comes in and does is say, like, I'm going to work with these kids. I can talk to the parents. We're going to figure something out. And in a lot of cases, um, it's like you you have a child that is either disrupting the class, holding back the class, and it could be everything. Like there's kids, and I I know this because my mother-in-law was a parapro for years, and she was taking the kids that, you know, back when we went to high school, they were the troublemakers, right? Mm -hmm. Sat at the back of the class and everybody ignored or the teacher ignored, and then they just sent them to the principal's office. They kind of realized that, you know, there's some other factors happening here. Maybe they don't have the best home life. Maybe there's some underlying issues with their, um, you, you know, like maybe they have like autism or um, maybe they're ADHD or ADD or whatever the term is now. It's like, okay, we can identify this. We can work with them. Also dyslexia. It's like, well, maybe this student isn't getting it because they can't actually read due to a, a problem with dyslexia. Um, so the parapro kind of goes in and works with them and, and is the liaison between the teacher and the student and everybody. It makes them feel comfortable. Kind of like what a school counselor was back in the day, yeah. but now I don't even know what school counselors do. Um, I think they try to get kids into college and stuff. Yeah. But, but it's a whole different but it, thing. Yeah, it, it's like they sit down with the kids and they, they identify what the issues are and come up with a program to work. And then the, the, the student has, like, a safe person to go to. It's like, you know, this, this isn't working. I can go talk to my parapro or, you know, I could talk to Miss McCain. We'll just say that. Right. Or Mr. McCain and say, like, I'm really struggling with this. And they kind of work with the teacher instead of the, the teacher just, like, cutting them off or the kid getting in trouble, like, sending them yeah. to detention every week or eventually just kicking them out of school. And... And it's, I wish we had that when I was in high school. We did not have that. We had some sort of like mentorship program. Um, but my high school was unique at the time because I went to high school and in Pueblo, there was like the 90s. So the, there was a lot of teen pregnancy. And prior to that, it was like, you got pregnant in high school, you're done. You know, yeah. Like go home, yeah. like start working. So the high school I went to, Central High School, they actually had a daycare center in the high school. And we always joke because you go through my old yearbook, there's pictures of students with their kids. And at the time, we thought that was like, oh, that's hilarious. But looking back, like that was the best thing that the school I went to did because they took the kids from Pueblo, um, the teenage moms, and they took them to Central and they said they worked with them. They had like a um, prenatal care. They had like early childhood development. And they allowed these teenage moms to actually function in high school. So you would go to school 
and you had a daycare center there, right. and, and your child would go to the daycare center. You could check in. You go eat lunch with your kid. You know all this stuff. And then they they also brought in some cases and, and young love, man. It's like teenage teenagers <laughs> in love. Um, you know, I, I remember I had I had friends, and it, it was like, you know, the, the school I went to was like, yeah, my baby's daddy's going to school with me, and they actually brought the father into the school too. So oh they, they went through high school. The mother and the father, and they learn these early childhood development skills while still getting their education. So it wasn't it wasn't like okay, this is now you're this is where you're stuck in life. Yeah, it, it basically destigmatized being a teenage parent. So this is the same kind of thing. It's an acknowledgement that there's a diversity in learning and diverse learners. They have diverse skills, and so. Um, that extra bit is what's going to take them to the next level. It's going to it's going to not limit them. It's going to expand those yes. opportunities. But we're not serious about it. If we were serious about it, then we would have more help for those for the kids and those frontline workers. Well, the the idea back in the day, and when I say that, I mean like my day, like late 90s, was that the focus on education was more on the individual student, right? Right. And unfortunately, nowadays, you're seeing us get away from that, where it's like, we're going to give the tools and opportunities to the individual student to succeed versus the the whole body of students. And this is kind of scaring education. It's like, bring the rest down to bring the the rest up kind of thing where it's one size fits all with education. And at the time, you know, it, it wasn't a salary issue. It was I, teachers have always been underpaid, but I see a change now where it's kind of like, yeah, they're not focusing more on the individual, more on the group. And again, like they did have the paraprofessionals come in and that, that really helped. But now we're seeing us kind of get away from that. If that makes sense. Yeah. What do you think that would bring that back? Because I think exactly what you just described is actually what's needed. There needs to be some autonomy. And I think there needs to be some more autonomy given, some more information given. So this teacher was just about in tears. And I was fighting tears myself because she does not want, she just wants the best for her students. Yeah. But she's doing the best she can with what she has. And why are we not why are we not acknowledging and giving the teachers a more autonomy instead of more stuff to do, more boxes to check? We have to we have to do, there's a, the accountability piece that they're giving to teachers is tremendous. You know, they oh you have to do this, you have to do this, you have to do this, and it's not they're not nobody's actually said what do you need? In order to do your job better. Because with any bureaucracy or big machine, it doesn't matter. It's a one-size-fits-all. They want to see the numbers at the end of the day that certain groups of students graduate with the same grades versus, like, we we have it, like, there's some kids that are smart. There are some kids that are not as smart. They, they kind of want to level it out. Like, I, I think this is a big thing. And for right or wrong, it's all good intention, right? It's not anything, like... It's not anything nefarious. They just want to see more kids succeed. But at the same time, you have all these decision makers from the top saying, like, this is what we need to do to make sure more kids succeed. And it kind of cuts out the the worker. You know, it's the, the, classic, the, the classic thing in the military. It's like, you know, you have a lieutenant that comes in that's in charge who has no experience but knows what the goals are and what the, the higher-up brass want to see, and they don't listen to the NCOs. It's like, we're going to do it this way, and we're going to make it work this way without consulting with the actual worker bees, I guess you could say, like on it. It's, it, it, it's again, it's this kind of like top-down bureaucratic um, delegation of rules, regulations, without taking the input of the people that are actually the boots on the ground. So... How many times do you hear the saying that, like, congressmen and senators and politicians are out of touch with real life because they've been sitting up there for 40 years and they don't know how it actually is? Same thing. It's the same exact thing. So, 
And this is a question that I want to put out to all of our listeners because I want to know two things. One, is this just me? I mean, is it just my kids or the ones that I've talked to? Or do you have a story as well? Do you have something that you're seeing the same thing that we're seeing? Because I think we've, right now with the build back and blah, 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 there's an opportunity for us to rethink and be innovative. We've seen a few sort of whisperings to this sort of initiative where it's um, a, a bottom up, at least a look from the bottom up. Is, or is education so traditionally so many decades behind where it really should be that it would never catch up? Well, it's, <clears throat> it's the classic grassroots model. Like, <clears throat> excuse me, grassroots, like when it comes to education, this needs to be a bottom-up level. And the way for that to happen is to actually have like the average guy. And we had um, John uh, Christensen yeah, on the podcast a couple weeks ago. And that's, exactly what we need we need somebody from the the grassroots level i don't want to say the bottom up yeah but but the grassroots level because he even pointed out he he said that like you know what are you doing running for school board you're not an educator you don't have like a background in education but he has kids in school and he sees how this affects the kids and the learning and he's really good friends with lots of teachers and he's having this conversation So, so that's why i think it's important and I've said this for years, you know, everybody that wants to get into politics, it's like, oh, I want to be a congressman, a senator, or a state senator, or a county commissioner. But realistically, like where you make the most changes are on the lower level, like the, the lowest level of politics. Right. Like your local dog catcher, your local comptroller, your um, school board member, your electric board member, everything like this. Yeah. And, and that's where we're going to see that change because... If you get people that are actually in the mix, boots on the ground, have a vested interest in it. Like one thing that, that really bugs me about politicians on both both sides, it's like anybody that runs for like an office that has kids, it's like you don't care about your kids, man. Like if you're gonna run for office and you know you're running for US Senate or US Congress and you have kids in school. You're not going to see those kids. If you no. win, you're not going to see those kids for two years or six years. And and it frustrates me because they say, <clears throat> you know, this is about the children. This is about our future. And it's like you're kind of abandoning your future and, you know, your kids while doing this. Because it takes a lot of time and money and resources where your family becomes like, second place to your career when it comes to They're sacrificing to a lot. Yeah, your and, family ends up and, sacrificing. And then yeah. I, I've heard people say back, well, the same thing could be said about joining the military. And I'm like, well, not exactly because when you're in the military, there is this support system with schools and family and kids where they make sure they're taken care of. They understand that you're going to be gone and you're going to be out of the picture every now and then for deployments um, now that we're not. They're surrounded by a community yeah, and a yeah, village that, that that's going to give them that support. That's not the same. Yeah, but then at the same time, when you have somebody run for school board that doesn't have kids, it's like, why are you doing that? Because you you have to have a vested interest in the education program. So I think if you go into, like, you run for school board, and you don't have any kids, and I'm sorry if I'm going to upset some of our members or people yeah. we know or friends and That's family. That's okay, yeah. It's kind of like, you know, it's like, well, why are you doing this? Because when it comes to kids, like, they are your life. It's like, you know, if, you're, if you don't have kids, the, the most important risky decision you can make in your life is getting married, right? Yeah. It's like, you know, you're going <laughs> to spend your life with somebody. You don't know exactly who they are. And you're dedicating your future to them. So, okay. So it's like your, you know, your scale of like happiness is based off of like how happy you are, how happy is your spouse and all that. But the second that you have kids, it turns into a whole other thing where basically everything that makes you happy or makes you scared is based around your kids. No, it's entirely true. And when you, and to see that, that's why he's like, I'm going to run for school board because I really care and I'm worried about my kids and their future. If you don't have kids, it's kind of like one of those things. It's like, you don't understand it because are you, it's almost political. It's like, if you don't have kids or connected to kids and you get, it could be like, you know, my niece and nephew or something like that, whatever. Like you can 
So you're like, well, my nephews are struggling with this. I want to do something about it. But if you have no connection to that, it's like, why are you doing it? Like, Well, it's that whole um, perspective. Yeah. It's the whole perspective argument that you have to have varying perspectives in order to be specific. I mean, to all, order to be um, successful in what you're doing or to be impactful. Uh, and it's it's even like on the micro level, like you and I have very different perspectives on things. Yeah. But it's that that okay what's your perspective on this i ask you that all the time like what like where is this where are you sitting on this or where is this at with you um and it makes us so much stronger but that yeah. is that's the exception not the norm and so i question where and it's because we're trying to find a solution that's yeah. the whole thing the whole thing is all of the stuff that comes up is we're trying to find a solution for whatever. And I sit here or I think about with my own family, with my husband who's been who's made a career of educating. By the way, he's at the fourth generation in his family to be an educator. His brother's an educator. Both of his parents were. His his grandfather was a professor at Drake. Um, do you know what I mean? So education yeah. is really important to so, us. So let me ask you this. Can, and I don't think they can, but can a teacher run for school board? You know, that's, I don't think, I don't know that they can, but it wouldn't be smart for them to. Well, it's a, I know, I get it, it's a conflict of interest, but, you know, um, PCHC, the Pueblo, um, Pueblo Community Health Center, right. um, you know, on their board of directors, they have, providers actually all the hospitals do this too but they also have customers yes on it people that are that are using the system and that that's a big one i wonder why because and that's i think that's i get it that it's a conflict of interest but, but but how smart is it that donald moore has every aspect every touch point um in where he does yeah. as part of what he's doing but they don't ask teachers and they're can, not asking teachers. Or they're not part of the decision-making process. Can a student run for school board? <laughs> no, I'm serious. No, like, I what know. If you, what if you had a teacher and a student run for school board? What if we had that? Oh, my gosh. Nicholas? Nicholas, yeah. What if we had Nicholas run for school board? Now, how interesting would that be? Yeah, I mean, he was running for the Metro District while he was in high school. While he was in and high school. And he would have been making decisions for the school funding in that area and, and certain things. But Yeah. So here's what I'm asking you as our listeners. If you are listening to this and you have an experience um, on education or if you even have an idea, could you please share it with me so I understand. I know that it's not just me um, that's going that's doing this. Um, thank you so much for joining us. Um, Char- Chad Vorthman, I know you're listening. I will be up at Farm Bureau annual meeting tomorrow and through the weekend. Um, we appreciate you listening. Uh, email us at action20. No. Our show at action22.org. Show at action22.org. We'll see you guys next week. Thank you for tuning in to Making Action Happen. Be sure to join your hosts, Sarah Blackhurst and Brian McCain, for another edition of the show next Thursday at 1 p.m. Mountain Time, 12 noon Pacific Time, and 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.